Well, speaking of um, movies, you know how Brian was like, um, you know, my wife only lets me watch Hallmark movies or whatever. What's her name, Kelly, right? Because everything else isn't good. You know how when you're um, settling down maybe to watch a show at night and you're flipping through Netflix and then Hulu and then Amazon Prime and then everything else that's worse than that, you know, like <laughs> Tubi and whatever else there is, right? And you can't find anything to watch. Then you switch to Disney Plus. And you say, okay, we'll watch a kid's movie. You know, so because you're just like, you don't want something foul, but there's nothing good out there, right? So I switched to Disney Plus. I turn it on, and we watched the movie Swiss Family Robinson. Do you remember that movie? A couple of little facts. It was produced in the 1960s. Can you, I mean, 1960. Can you believe that? It was written by a pastor, John David Weiss, in the 1800s, like 1812 or something like that. He was, a, um, I think he was Swedish. I'm not sure what he was, but he was European. And he was a pastor, and he wrote the book to instruct his four boys on family values, good husbandry, the uses of the natural world, and self-reliance. Isn't that fun? And it has been adapted not hundreds, like 20 times, into different um, movies and different TV shows and stuff like that. And so we watched the, um, the 1960s version of uh, Swiss Family Robinson, which was like two and a half hours long. That's a long movie. And it reminded me of like Ben-Hur and all those ones that were super long. It had like an intermission and all that super operatic mu music and stuff, you know. But the reason I bring it up is because if you remember the movie a little bit, there's in this particular, in the Disney movie, there's three boys. Do you know the names? Ernst, Fritz, and Francis. Ernst and Fritz are the two oldest boys. And, um, you know, as life would have it, a girl appears on the island, right? And since there are no girls prior to that, that is very interesting to the boys, right? And they um, have a lot of conversation about that and a lot of competition. And um, there's actually one time when they come to fisticuffs over it, right? And the dad, who's, I mean, regular dad, he comes down, he finds them, he separates them. And he, you know, I thought in a 1960s movie it would be full of, you know, don't do that, fix up your behavior, um, very um, disciplinary, right? And he wasn't. He was like, come on, boys. You know you love each other. Say you're sorry. Let's get on with life. Let's live. And he just smoothed right over it and went on. And I turned to Chris and I said, that's the most unusual thing I've seen in this age of a movie before ever because you expect, especially from a patriarchal figure, that you're going to see some kind of heavy-handed punishment, shame, or control. And he didn't do that at all. And I was super impressed that for 1960, they had their act together for that particular moment. I thought it was kind of cool. And I bring it up because our, um, our topic today is about shame. And really, my title is Shameless, but it's, it's kind of shameless with a question. Because I, I want to pose the question, can we live a life, is it possible to live a life where we do not partner with shame? Or is that not possible? Are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to have shame? I'll just ask you guys. Is shame something we're supposed to is a natural part of our life. Because why? How, why is it not, Linda? 
Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what I want to go, I want to start with, I, Bob and I have been reading this book called Unpunishable by um, Danny Silk. And it's built on the premise, it's, it's, the whole title is Unpunishable, Ending Our Love Affair with Punishment. Ending Our Love Affair with Punishment. Because the reality is, I'll bet you every single person here in this room was raised under a punishment paradigm of control and dominance and you need to follow the rules or else there's going to be consequences slash punishment. And the message that that gives to people when you are in a punishment paradigm is, I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me because I can't live up to your rules. Like I'm fallen and I can't live up to your rules, therefore something's wrong with me. And I want to explore where that came from and if that has a place in our theology today. And it might not have a place in our theology, but do we still live with it? Because the reality is, what we do is what we really believe. We can say, like Bob says, we can say one thing here and believe a whole nother thing here. And that's what I want to just explore with you. And then down the road, I'll probably get into the unpunishable part, but I want to talk about shame. I want to talk about where does shame come from? How do we deal with it? How can we get rid of it? Is that fair? This is, from, um, this is from his book. This is Danny Silk from Unpunishable. For most of us, the punishment paradigm was formed in us when we were tiny. When we broke the rules, made a mess, or did something our parents disapproved of, we were disciplined. And we reacted in one of two ways. If we were strong-willed, we rebelled against the punishment and continued to be behave badly. If we were compliant or obedient, we learned our lesson and changed our behavior. But both responses were driven by the same motive, fear of punishment. In truth, we all learned the same lesson. We didn't learn to reject bad behavior because it violates ourselves, people, and relationships, or to love good behavior for its own sake. We learned to fear punishment. I, feel, I think that's a really true statement. Do you guys believe that? I think we can see this borne out in um, the very beginning, in Genesis chapters 2 and chapters 3. You know, one thing I, I, I didn't understand until I became older, and I started doing all those personality tests and stuff, you know, like Disfinder and Strengths and Enneagram and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that my, one of my number one personality strengths had to do with relationships, had to do with people and connecting and stuff like that. And then as I explored, especially Genesis, explored the Bible more, I realized that that was completely the image of God inside of me in that particular way. I believe that God is a connected God. He wants to be connected to people, and he created people that absolutely need connection. They need connection with each other, and they need connection with God. And not superficial connection like, hey, how's it going? We need intimate relationships. We need intimate relationships, maybe one or two people, and then we need closer relationships, and then we can have down the road, maybe more acquaintances kind of things. But we were created, even if you're an introvert, you were created for intimacy. And you were created for vulnerability. You were created to reveal your naked self to each other. Now, I want you to, not that I want you to think about naked bodies, but I want you to think about this for a second. If Adam and Eve were created pure and holy and sinless, and without shame, they were completely naked with each other, 
correct? Is it possible that had they gone on to not fall and procreate, that the rest of the human race would have been naked as well to each other? Isn't that a foreign thought in your mind? Like, could you imagine? Okay, I mean, we're all here with no clothes on. What would that be like? <laughs> Not just because of the weather, right? So here's Adam and Eve. They're, they're created by the Lord, and... Um, Adam's first, and God says, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs connection. He needs connection of his own kind. I mean, I'll bring the animals to him, and he can name them, but obviously that's not going to be enough. He needs connection with somebody of his own ilk, and he makes Eve for Adam. And they, what does the Bible say? In the end of chapter 2, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. Seven verses later, it's a whole different story, right? So seven verses later, now we have Adam and Eve eating the apple, and immediately their eyes are opened, and they look at each other. Now, they're not even looking at God. They're looking at each other going, you're naked, and I'm naked. And they clothe themselves for each other. I need, I need to understand something. They went to get fig leaves, and I don't know how they sewed those things together, but they sewed fig leaves together. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what they really created. Did they create, like, you know, they always depicted with loincloths and bikinis and whatever. And I'm like, is that just somebody's imagination, or is that they really did? No, that's what it really meant. The Hebrew word means apron. They created aprons for themselves. Probably not anything here, ladies, just here. And I thought, now, how weird it is that your nakedness involves a place of intimacy and a place of, and it's, it's almost difficult to talk about it because it's so taboo in our relationship or in our culture, right? But this is really important because this is a place of vulnerability. This is a place of exposure. And this is what they had to cover up between themselves. This is before they even had a conversation with the Lord. They looked at each other and said, we're naked. And they were married, as much as you could be married back then. They were married, right? But they felt, they felt naked and ashamed between each other. What a bummer. And then, you know, because Adam and Eve were created for connection, God was in the habit of talking to them every night. Let's go for an evening stroll. Let's see what's going on. And he, God comes into the garden. Adam, Adam, where are you, Adam? And Adam's, and Ad, this is Adam and Eve together. They, they were hiding. They were hiding. Now, why were they hiding, you guys? They had fig leaves on. You'd think that would have covered some of their nakedness. They were hiding from the Lord. And the Lord says, where are you? And Adam says, we were hiding because we're naked. Now, why are they naked in front of God if they have fig leaves on? And my suggestion to you is this, that we can experience a relational nakedness and a spiritual nakedness. Does that make sense? We can be completely vulnerable and exposed. One, it's one thing to each other, but to be vulnerable and exposed to the Lord is a completely other type of nakedness. So when Adam and Eve responded to the Lord, they said we're naked, which they had fig leaves on. They were kind of not naked, as we would 
talk about it. You know, the Lord said to him, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? How did you figure that out? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to do? Who told you you were naked? Adam said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So the, the connection with shame is fear. Shame is the child of fear, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden, their view of the Lord become completely distorted, and they began to be afraid of him. They had no reason to. He had not punished them up to that moment. He had not done anything that would have made them want to be afraid or standoffish. He had done nothing but bless them, put them in a garden. The Garden of Eden meant pleasure, bliss, and something else. I mean, they had no reason to fear him whatsoever until the fall. And then all of a sudden, their perception of the Lord was completely different. I was afraid of you, and I was naked, so I hid. It's kind of like when Chris was talking about um, the story of the talents, how the, the third uh, servant said, I knew you to be a hard master, so I buried my talent in the ground. He had a distorted view of who the Lord was. He did not know. He was afraid of something that wasn't real. And that was the deception that came into the garden. All of a sudden, now we're afraid of something that we don't really even have the right knowledge to be afraid of. We're just afraid. That's what the fall that distorted our vision of who God is. And shame is the result. Now, God makes garments. This is interesting. The word garment, would you, did you think it was another loincloth that he made? It's not. It's a shoulder-to-knee garment out of animal skins, right? The animal skins things we can understand. That's a representation that, that blood has to be spilled to cover our sin. That's a, that's a foreshadowing of Jesus right there, okay? But I was like, why do we need long garments? Why couldn't we just have the fig leaf? Why couldn't we have our loincloths? Why was that not good enough? A couple of answers I got was, for one thing, you're going to be expelled from the garden. They're going to need more coverings than what they had. That was one thing. The second thing was that sin, and this is what I believe, while we may think it is in one area of our life, our whole body is infected with it. And so the garment had to cover more of our body than just what the loincloth would cover. That's just my idea. Interesting. So I just kind of want to talk about, what the, that's the birth of shame. That's where shame came from, Garden of Eden. Very simple. Shame comes from fear of being punished. And here's the, here's the thing, you guys. They had a chance to say, I'm sorry, but they did not one time say it. You read the book, didn't you? Just like me. They had the chance to say, Lord, we didn't know what we were doing. We're so sorry. We repent. They did not do that. They did not repent. They did not say they were sorry. They hid because they were afraid. See, this is what shame does, you guys. Shame says, you know what? That connection that you had, you can't repair it, so you need to go hide. You can't repair your connection, so you need to control it. You need to dominate. Shame says, 
connection's not possible. So you need to resort to your own thinking, if you will, to make a way for yourself. And that is an absolute lie from the enemy. And that's what shame does to people. It isolates us out of community, and we start living and doing our own thing completely cut off and separated from any source of truth in their life. And a lot of times, truth comes to us from godly counsel, from our girlfriend, from our husband, from whoever. But when we're isolated and we don't connect with other people, all of a sudden, we're believing our own stuff and whatever the enemy has planted in our minds. How many times have we seen that happen, even in your own life? Have there been times when you've received a lie and you've partnered with it and you're like, could this really be true? And then it burns inside of you and you reveal it to one of your friends. They're like, what are you talking about? That's not true at all. Has it ever happened to you where you've received a lie like that? That happens to me all the time, just so you know. <clears throat> this, I think, is from Brene Brown. The stronger the fear of punishment and the voice of shame in our hearts, the more we use the threat of punishment and disconnection to protect ourselves. The harshest punishment comes from those of us who are most driven by fear and shame. You know, I've been doing this um, marriage class with Chris for two and a half years, three, and a half, three years now maybe, and the things that I see that are, that are chronic issues in marriages but are really just chronic issues is, in relationships, because marriage is just a microcosm of, a re of other relationships, right? You're in a marriage with the person who bugs you the most sometimes, right? You're closest with them, they rub against you, and you got to figure out how to live life with them, right? They're just the tightest relationship you have. Everything else is the same, but maybe expressed a little differently, if that makes sense. And so one of the things that I see as the, the most important things that we need to learn to do in our relationships is engage in healthy conflict. Engage in healthy conflict. Nobody wants, now how many people, who wants to do conflict? Anybody want to do conflict? Who loves conflict? Yeah, I hate conflict. But the reality is we have to engage in conflict. We are not called to not engage in conflict. We are not called to be completely passive and run away and put our heads in the sand. We have to engage in healthy conflict, so we have to learn what healthy conflict is. And my, what I'm trying to, here's how I'm trying to connect this, you guys. Dysfunctional conflict, dysfunctional relationships are always, and I'll go on a limb, always birthed out of fear and shame. It all comes down to fear and shame. Fear and shame, fear and shame. So what do we do when we don't know how to have healthy conflict? We don't know how to resolve our differences with each other. So what do we do? We use anger and dominance. I'll dominate that person. I'll punish the crap out of them till they do what I want them to do. We manipulate. We retreat out of fear because we don't have a safe place. We retreat. We become a people pleaser. How do I please you? How do I just do what it takes to get you off my back and to, and to preserve myself? That's not healthy conflict. Not healthy conflict. I, I submit to you that every addiction is born of shame, that every people pleaser is battling shame, every angry and controlling person is battling shame. 
That's hard to believe, right? It's hard to believe that an angry person is full of shame. But I just want you to remember what they said. There's two ways people deal with shame. You either become a people pleaser and you completely submit yourself to the rules as you know them so that you are, you're covering yourself. That's your fig leaves. You're covering yourself. Or you rebel and you redefine it in your own terms because you're like, I'm not doing it your way. Screw you. That's an angry and controlling person. And it's hard to believe that anger and control is born of shame, but I really believe that. Shame and fear. They're trying to control their environment. And I will dominate you until you actually conform to it. And then I have control. And then no one can make me feel shame. Do you follow me? Almost all the problems in any marriage could be fixed if we fix the problem of shame. If the problem of shame was fixed in our society, our relationships would be restored and transformed because shame is at the root of it. Because we're afraid to expose ourselves in vulnerability to each other because of what the consequence might be. We don't want to be naked in front of each other. The, the job of the church, believe it or not, you guys, is to teach us how to be naked in front of each other and naked in front of God. That's hard to hear, right? Because it feels weird to be naked in front of people. You know? Oh, you did. Thank you. I think that the job of a mature Christian and the job of the church is to reclaim what we lost in the garden, is to help us reclaim our relationship with the Lord and our connection with each other that is transparent, is vulnerable, is exposed in a way that we receive no shame and no shame is given, and that we're not afraid of punishment. And that's a really weird um, paradigm to shift into because we're really used to the punishment paradigm. We're really used to prisons, the law, just getting a ticket from the policeman. That's all based on punishment. Here's your punishment for breaking the law. You're going to jail for breaking the law. You can't vote because you're a felon. Everything is a consequence for you not adhering to society's behavioral standards. And we're used to living in that. And I guess what I'm trying to tell you guys is we, I hope, I believe, as we become more mature, we're going to break out of the punishment paradigm. We are actually going to lose our love affair with punishment. And we're going to begin to respond to each other the way that Jesus showed us how to respond to each other. So let's just now, let's switch gears into the New Testament and let's talk about how did Jesus relate to sinners in the New Testament? Did he ever turn anyone, anyone away, can you think of? And even people came to him at night, like Nicodemus came at night. He was like, I'm secretly a Pharisee, but I want to know what you're talking about, so I'll come to you at night, that kind of thing, right? Jesus didn't say, get out of here, you hypocrite. He was like, sure, I'll, I'll talk to him. One of my very favorite um, stories in the New Testament is the story of the woman who washes up, breaks the alabaster oil, alabaster vessel of oil over Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her hair. Do you remember that? Such a beautiful picture of someone's hair being so long and washing his feet. And the story is that he goes to actually a Pharisee's house to eat dinner named Simon. And this woman comes in who's a known prostitute. And she comes in and she brings in an alabaster 
jar of oil, which I think is of pure nard or something like that, which I think is supposed to be like a year's salary or really extravagant. Um, and she pours it over Jesus' feet, and she weeps, and she cries, and she makes me cry, and she washes and dries his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee says, if you knew who this, you, you can't be a prophet, because if you knew who this woman was, you would not allow her to touch you. Her sin would infect you. But this, you guys, this is an example of someone who has moved beyond her shame to become the ultimate worshiper. If we want to see what it looks like to live without shame in our lives, that's the picture right there. She was an, I don't know if she's adulteress, she was a prostitute. She was a woman. She was uninvited in that person's home. And she had to get so close to Jesus, she let nothing stop her. She didn't let society, she didn't let her sin, she didn't let um, anybody prevent her from worshiping Jesus. And I'm just here to say, if we're going to break out of shame, we've got to learn to be like her. That's our model for living. And in the, when you go to the Bible and you read the little verse, it says something like perfect worship, the model of perfect worship. I think that we can tell who's dealt with their shame and who hasn't dealt with their shame by how much we bring condemnation and shame on other people. When you meet people that are negative, critical, condemning, I guarantee you they're battling shame in their lives. When you meet somebody who says, I'm, I'm living for Jesus, I'm doing what Jesus has called me to do, I love you. Now, did Jesus confront people? I mean, he didn't just roll over and say, you can do whatever you want, right? He was the picture of healthy confrontation. But I'll tell you what he didn't do. Not one time did he punish anybody or bring shame to them. Not one time. In fact, once they had repented, he was like, go and sin no more. See you later. Go and sin no more. We have the picture of this in um, when Jesus gives a parable of the uh, prodigal son, right? This is a little preview into our next sermon. But when we talk about punishment versus what? What, what is the alternative for punishment? Restoration. Restoration. Repentance. God is after repentance and restoration and transformation. He's not after punishment. He is not after shame. He doesn't want us to live in the grip of shame. If we look at, um, if we look at the prodigal son, we see this is a perfect example because the, the prodigal son says, yeah, I wish you were dead, dad. I wish you were dead. Give me my money since you're not dead, and I'll hit the road. And what does the scripture says? He went off and he sp- spent all his money on wild living. And, and the, the idea is women, wine, and whatever, all of it. Went to live with the pigs. You know the story. Sir, you know, didn't have enough to eat. Even these pigs have more to eat than I do. And this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. He came to his senses. He came to his senses. And, he, this, and his, this is a picture of repentance. Repentance is this. I've come to my senses. I'll turn away from what I'm currently doing. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say, I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I be your servant? And what does the father do? The father from far away sees his son who's repented, runs to him. This is my son I've been waiting for. Kill the fatted calf, put a ring on his fingers, sandals on his feet, a robe on his back, 
we're going to have a party. That's the picture that we're to live out in our lives, in the new covenant, in the kingdom, in the church. Now, what punishment did that man, what, what punishment did we see in there? He repented, the Lord restored him. He repented, and the Lord restored him. The key to living a shameless life is to say, Lord, where do I need to repent? Let me repent and turn away and say, Lord, I repent. And then like the woman with the, with the expensive the hair and the expensive oil, we worship Jesus. We worship at his feet because he said, you have covered my sins. You're my garment of skin. You have covered all my sins, and I get to leave my shame at the cross, and I don't have to bring my shame with me anywhere. And she gets to be restored. We all get to be restored back to our sonship when we repent. And I just think that's a perfect picture of leaving shame at the cross, stepping into sonship and transformation and saying, how am I going to live out this transformed life? I don't know about you, but when I first, when I was going through my divorce and everything like that, there was no bigger shame than that. I mean, there probably is, but that was a lot of shame for me. That's a lot of failure. That's a lot of shame. But my destiny is not to live in that. That's not my identity. That's not my destiny. And that's a lie. That's a lie. Because if our sins have been covered by the blood and they're on the cross and Jesus has borne our sins, they are gone forever. And we don't have to remember them any longer. And that shame doesn't have to taint us any longer. We get to live shameless lives. Shamelessly on fire for the Lord, worshiping with no shame, with no fear of retribution, with no punishment, but with the joy of transformation the joy of restoration in our lives. And I think that's the message that I want to talk about next time, Bob, unless you talk about it. But I want to talk about what are, what's our goal as New Testament believers? How do we change the way we talk about politics, talk about other people, deal with our spouses, our kids, our friends? How do we deal with each other not from a place of shame, but also recognizing they may come from a place of shame and giving them grace in that? We need to be the leaders in this. We are, not, we are not called to be just receivers of the truth and of grace, but we have to give it out. Because if, if we don't give it out, who's going to give it out? How are they going to see the truth? You know, I think there's a time coming. Someone said this. Remember when Kanye West um, became a Christian and his album, whatever that was, uh, what was Lord is, Jesus is King? I saw a picture um, whenever that first came out on Facebook or whatever, and there was a huge banner in New York City from like the 40th floor, a huge skyscraper with a big long banner that ran all the way down. It said, Jesus is King in New York City, 40 feet high. Like, what? This Kanye West is a Mary Magdalene of our culture. Kanye West, he's a Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus got a hold of him, he posted a banner 40 stories high that said Jesus is king. That's what's at stake. If we will communicate the message of grace to the Mary Magdalene's among us, watch out because they will change the world. 
They will do all the evangelism that we don't want to do because they're going to be extravagant worshipers. I was telling Bob I had a dream a couple days ago, and I don't know. It could have been late night Facebooking. Who knows what it was, right? I don't know if it was scriptural or not. But I was thinking of Kanye West because I was thinking about how, um, and he married to Kim Kardashian or whatever. I mean, what in the world, right? There's a lot going on there, right? But here's Kanye West, who's freaking converting the world, people, with his stuff. Am I right, Aaron? So I was um, in and out of sleep. You know how it is when you're, like, in and out of sleep at night? And I had a dream about Ellen DeGeneres. You know, she's got that, um, that clothing line in Walmart and all that says, be kind, love, you know, apparently really righteous things. I mean, that's a life-giving statement, be kind and love. And it's coming from a secular person. But I just want you to know something. She's got the image of God inside of her. She has a call in her life. She's a Mary Magdalene that when Jesus gets a hold of her, you better watch out. Because that woman is an influencer, and she can influence the world. And I began to sit up and pray for her. I said, Lord, let her have an encounter that changes her into a, a Kanye West so that she's on her show going, Man, I had encountered the Lord, and I, now I, I'm a Jesus follower, and I don't put on a line of clothes that says Jesus is king, or whatever. That's what's at stake, you guys. We got to get this right. We got to get our message right, but we got to live it in order to give it. We got to live it in order to give it. So we got to decide: Are we going to operate from a, from a place of shame, fear of punishment, or are we going to change our paradigm? Are we going to partner with the Lord, change our paradigm? so that we're going to get the Mary Magdalene's. The, the time is coming. The time is coming. The Lord's going to move across this earth. And just like um, Chris Falden said, you can get on board or get out of the way. I'm going to get on board. I'm going to get on board with what God's doing. And I want you to get on board. That might mean some introspection into to what your foundational beliefs are. That may mean you have to really look at the way we treat each other. What, what's the message that we're giving to each other? I'm calling you to a higher place. I'm calling you up to a higher place. You are God's ambassadors. And we need to get the Mary Magdalene's. Right? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everybody here who has struggled with the spirit of shame. And I pray, God, that you would release them now in the name of Jesus, Father God, that the spirit of God would be here to release truth, release peace, release forgiveness and transformation. In shame, we say you need to go now in the name of Jesus. You have no place in our body. You have no place amongst us. We will not receive you. We will not partner with you. We are forgiven, and we are covered, and we are set free, and we choose to be extravagant worshipers of what you've done for us, Lord. So I thank you tonight for this message, God. I pray, Lord, that it would just penetrate deep into our hearts, God. We begin to walk out of this freedom, Lord, and we begin to preach this freedom and preach this message to everyone you come in contact with. It would actually change the way, our course of life, and the way that we would um, interact with the people around us, Lord, that ours would be nothing but a message of the healing power and transformation of Jesus, God. We love you and we bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.